The reading for today is Isaiah 53, 1 through 6. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all." This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thank you, Rachel. Good morning, Redemption. You can sit down, Dennis. It's okay. Thanks. All right. Good to see you all. Um, If you're new here, we are glad that you are here. My name is Frank Switzer, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Arcadia. If you don't know him, this is Tyler James. He's our family pastor. He's been here with us now three years. Um, And he's going to be preaching uh, today. But um, a a couple of months ago, I I came and announced that... um, we were sort of uh, reworking our, our pastoral staff and, and that we had actually had two openings uh, because Cody left, but also we were looking at our needs and decided to uh, um, open it up for two different uh, pastoral positions and uh, we were looking. And so um, I have a little update on that search. I just wanted to be able to keep you guys in the loop. I wanted to let you know that in the last two weeks, we've extended uh, two offers, one for each position to two different people, and both have accepted and have decided to join our uh, Redemption Arcadia. So that's exciting. So I want to tell you a little bit about them. Um, first of all, uh, the search itself was interesting to me because we never posted anything anywhere about the jobs. Uh, we were able to do all this all through networking and relationship. And um, I just think that's partly because of the great network that we have at Redemption Church. That's really important. Um, Tyler uh, Johnson, who is, that's Tyler James, Tyler Johnson, who is our lead pastor over all of Redemption Church, um, he was the one that spearheaded the merger uh, nine years ago of East Valley Bible Church and Praxis Church to make Redemption Church. And his little slogan was always, we're better together, we're better together. And that has proven to be true uh, over the years. We are better together. So th- that's one of the benefits of Redemption Church. Uh, at any rate, um, our new pastor of church formation worship, so the person who is coming in for what Cody used to do, uh, his name is Tyler. <laughs> Not joking. Not joking. Yeah, this is, this is going to turn into something like a Saturday Night Live uh, skit now, but it's not. We're being very serious. So his name is Tyler, uh, and he's, he and his family are going to be coming from California. So uh, they're currently living in Southern California and ministering in a church uh, there. So the fact that they live in California, it's going to take about three years for him to extricate himself from that, and then he'll be here. Uh, so be patient. No, I'm kidding. He'll, he'll, they will be here sometime uh, in early to mid-January. Uh, so we'll be welcoming them in uh, at that time. I think his first Sunday here is going to be uh, the Sunday that we have the church picnic during the, mar- no, the marathon Sunday when we can't have any morning services. Uh, anyway, that's about when they're going to be joining us. Um, so that's Tyler. And then uh, the person that we hired 
um, to become the pastor of uh, communities and local outreach. Uh, he is actually more of a local guy. He and his family live here in Phoenix, and uh, they've been around Phoenix for uh, quite some time, in and out, but been around Phoenix. And in fact, he has a history with Praxis Church. So um, he knows many of you, in fact, inside um, this congregation already, but his name is James. So <clears throat> we have a Tyler James now, and we'll have a Tyler and we'll have a James. So we're very excited about how, this is the greatest mnemonic achievement of my life. I will tell you that right now. So, uh, my, uh, my middle name is Randall, so if there's any Randalls looking for a we'd job. Love to, we'd love to hire you if your name is Randall. That would be, you're, you're in, I'm telling you. So uh, James is right back there, in case you're wondering. So, yep, there he is. So we're glad you're here. Uh, Liz was here, his wife was here in the in the morning, sir. By the way, that reminds me, there's more to this, okay? Both Tyler and James are married to Liz. Isn't that amazing? So we're really excited, though, because it's two different, different Liz's. Liz's. Yeah. yeah, I want to make sure that's clear. It's two different Liz's. So uh, Liz I, what's the plural of Liz? I don't know. Okay, so two different Liz's. Anyway, uh, so it's, uh, we're just, we're really into this. How many of you are around for all the Sean's? You remember, and we, so we named them Baggy Pants Sean, Regular Pants Sean, and Skinny Pants Sean. Remember that? So, yeah, good luck with this. So, I just feel like everyone's yeah. looking at my pants right now. <laughs> so, uh, one last thing. Uh, this is kind of an informal announcement. Uh, this is James's first day with us. It was easier to do because they live here. They, he actually lives kind of in, in the area, which is really nice too, so he's not going to have to move. But uh, once Tyler gets here, we're planning on, on having a more formal sort of uh, meet and greet and get together. We'll probably do that on some Thursday night in late uh, January or early February. So that's all I got. So I'm turning over to Tyler okay. now. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, good morning, Redemption Church. Um, it's great to be with you all today, and here's what I've been telling the staff about this whole Tyler, Tyler, James thing, okay? I said, when they get here, we're just going to tell all the jokes that there are right away, and just we're going to get all those done, get them out, then we're going to just move on with our lives, okay? That's, that's the only way I'll survive here, okay, is if we do it that way. All right, so speaking of moving on, we are three weeks now into our Advent series this year. We go through Advent every year because it reminds us what it is to wait well. And so we're waiting for the birth of this, the story of the birth of Christ while waiting for his return as well. Now we're looking at an Old Testament book called Isaiah. You can turn there now. Chapter 53, verses 4 through 9. If you don't know where that is, just flip right open into the middle. You might land there. And if not, let's just acknowledge it's okay to look at the table of contents, right? You can do that. That's okay. All right, so we're in chapter 53, verses 4 through 9. Now, in order to understand where we're at in the series and in Isaiah better, we're going to start by taking a quick look back at the series so far. And I say quick look, but, you know, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. All right, our Advent series is, has been called The Suffering Servant. And we're taking a unique look back at the Christmas story. I wouldn't say it's been exactly warm and fuzzy so far, but... If you look at this section of Isaiah, it's about the suffering servant, and it's not warm and fuzzy, so it kind of matches the tone of Isaiah, so don't be surprised if today feels like a downer. So last week, Frank talked about this suffering servant being a man of sorrows, right? And he went into the topic of depression in all its various forms. It was a really important week. If you missed it, it's at least worth a go back and listen to on the podcast 
or on the website. If not, more discussion and journaling based on that. It was really good. And so far, like I said, we've taken a different look at this suffering servant as a foretelling of the person of Jesus. So as we read these verses, we're thinking about this suffering servant. We're also thinking about this is a foretelling of Jesus told hundreds of years before he would come and fulfill that. But it's different than what we usually get in the Christmas story, which is that cozy eight pounds, six ounce little baby Jesus story. But that's why we're doing it. We want you to have this version of Jesus as we enter into this season, this suffering servant. Not to be a downer, but to remind you of a different perspective. Because for many of us, Christmas feels like that. It feels like a downer. And we've mentioned this before, but this season is hard for some. And we want everyone to know, whatever this season is like for you, that there's hope. There's hope. But it might not come in the way you expect The other thing I want to point out is that we entered into a song last week, a poem that begins in verse 13 of the previous chapter in chapter 52, and that's why our scripture reading included some of the verses that we technically covered last week. But the whole point of this poem is to show that this servant will be exalted. It says it right in the first line. He will be high and lifted up like a king. In fact, a lot of that language is reserved in the Bible, speaking of God himself which is interesting because in the very same stanza, the very same stanza, he's also described as being despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows that we, supposed to be his people, are in fact ashamed of him. And there's a shift in the narrator voice that I want you to notice partway through this song. Starting in the first three of chapter 52, 13, 14, and 15, is speaking of God talking about this servant, but there's a shift into we speaking about this servant. Now, it's speaking of the perspective of the faithful people of Israel. Now, the reason that matters is because we're going to infer that over to us. We're going to talk about that as being us, the church, the faithful ones, and for some of you, that's you. You are the faithful people in the church. You are living with Jesus as King and Lord over your lives. Doesn't mean you're perfect, but you're you're there. For some of you, that's not you. I don't assume that's everyone here. So if you're here and you're questioning and you're struggling in unbelief, let me just say on behalf of the church, we're just glad you're here. You might have a long story of how you even ended up here, but we're glad that you did. So I'll ask you just to Listen with us, do the hard work with us of learning who this Jesus is, how he's described in the Bible, because I bet he's different than you think. And lastly, I'll say, if this is you, come forward when you're ready and pray with someone. Come talk to one of the pastors here. We'd love to pray with you and meet with you when you're ready. And so one of the books I studied in preparation for this was called the Africa Bible Commentary, and it's a collection, if you don't know, it's a single volume with over 70 contributing African scholars, and it explains that this section of Isaiah is referred to as the fourth in the book of Isaiah and longest servant song. It extends, like we said, from 52.13 all the way to 53.12, and you can see the layout that's reflected in your Bibles if you look. And this poem, this song, is extremely dense. I've always heard that the depth and breadth of the Bible is as vast and deep as the ocean. And man, is that true here. 
And unfortunately, we're going to look at just a couple of drops of that ocean. I wish we could do more. One of the main things I want you to see today is this great dichotomy between our expectations on how God would go about saving his people, what this servant would look like, what he would do, and the reality of how it happened. Look at the question asked in 53 verse 1. 53 verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's saying, who would have thought that this is how God's servant would be treated? That this is who God's servant would be? Despised, rejected, a man of sorrows. This is so different than the way we would have guessed. So keep in mind these two things. Through this series and into your Advent series and practices at home, this question first, who would have thought? And next, keep in mind this version of Jesus, this suffering servant, as the story progresses. Now I'm sure if, if I say something like, man, God works in kind of funny ways sometimes, that might resonate with some of you. You have stories in mind. So here's a story. As a month ago, I started getting into poetry. It's a new thing for me. I didn't grow up with poetry at all. I knew nothing about it. And it's its own language. I have to read a book on how to even read poetry, okay? So don't be too impressed. I'm reading at like the first grade equivalent of poetry. It's great, but that's, that's where I'm at. So I didn't know, here's the ironic part. I didn't know I'd be preaching on a poem when I started getting into poetry, but it's helped me so much in reading this and studying this. Now I know I just lost some of you already. Because you're thinking, poetry is not really my thing. Okay, let me tell you something. Stay with me. Did you know the Bible's actually chock full of poetry? Okay, so Christians, Bible readers, you are in fact into poetry. Little did you know, but you are. So here are a couple of helpful tips I picked up when reading poetry like we're about to do. And I bet you didn't think you'd be learning about poetry, but here we are. Okay, first, slow down, listen. Mary Oliver, she's a decorated and distinguished poet, teacher of poetry, says in her poetry handbook, that's the book I've been reading, says this, a poem on the page speaks to the listening mind. We have to slow down. We have to listen. And just to remind you, this isn't just in reading poetry. This isn't going to help you in reading the Bible in our passage today. Next, every word counts. Read it as if each word were painstakingly crafted and inserted into that text by design. So notice the diction. What words are being said and why? Notice the tone. Is it a somber or more joyful poem? Look at the voice. Who is speaking? That makes a big difference too. And the imagery. What imagery is being used? How is it being used? How does it aid in the point? Mary Oliver says to pay especially close attention to the last line and the first line too. But side note, this is why a good translation of the Bible is so helpful. And I would say too, don't just read one translation, read them all because, you know, these poems weren't written in English. So not everything translates perfectly. You're going to find bits and pieces and different things from different translations. So anyway. And then third, read it more than once. So a good poem, and the Bible's full of good poetry, will show you something different each time. Now, it's important to read it slow one time through, then read it faster, but just read it more than once through. 
So with those things in mind, let's read verse 4 together. Now, if we're reading this like a poem, let's slow down and let the words carry us. And I'm not going to do this the entire sermon, so don't worry. All right, Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Okay, pause right there. Notice that first word, surely. See how that gives you a sense of safety, security, firmness, but firmness in what? Look at the next word, surely he. Now here is the great subject of this song. This suffering servant, it all comes back to him and we, to he and us. Speaking of God's servant, foreshadowing of Jesus, and us, the faithful people in the church. This is that great dichotomy. That's the root of it right here. So surely he, it continues, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Is this a happy poem or a sad poem? It's a sad, it's, it's a melancholy, somber tone. Now, there's no way for me to make that sound super happy-go-lucky, right? Okay, so don't be surprised. And then notice words like stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. You notice how they have that kind of sharp sting to them, right? It's almost like they're piercing the poem itself with the words. Now, look, look again at verse uh, 6 and 7 of this same chapter. Jump down, and here you'll find a simile. So in poem... In poems, a simile is a comparison in likeness of two different things. Okay, it's important to notice that because we need to notice it and then ask, why? Why is this simile being made? Look with me in verse 6. All we, like, there's a simile, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See how that, it almost rhymes. Did you guys catch that? We've gone, we've gone astray, everyone to his own way. The Lord's laid on him. See how much more you pick up when you read it like this? Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like, another simile, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So the comparison being made is we are like sheep. But if you saw the greater comparison being made, it's it's comparing the suffering servant also to sheep. So the question is why? Why the comparison of we are like sheep and he's like a sheep? Okay, notice, we are like the worst parts of sheep. We get all the worst parts. We scatter, right? When, When sheep are afraid, they just scatter. They go their own way. They wander off. That's what, she, that's what sheep do, and, and that's how we're like sheep. He is like sheep, except he's like the best parts of what it, what it is to be a sheep. He's easily led. He's obedient. He's quiet. He's trusting. Do You notice, too, in there, it, even, even going your own way is described as iniquity which seemed harsh as I read that. Just going your own way is described as iniquity, something that culture would see and go, well, yeah, you should go your own way. Yeah, carve your own path. One commentator says this, this effect in the servant is the measure of how seriously God takes our rebellion and crookedness. 
We typically wish to make light of our shortcomings, to explain away our mistakes, but God will have none of it. The refusal of humanity to bow to the Creator's rule and our insistence on drawing upon our own moral codes that pander to our lusts are not shortcomings or mistakes. They're the stuff of death and corruption. See what I mean by downer? But many of us need to hear this today. Notice it seems really important in this text too that they mention it three different times that this servant was silent that he didn't open his mouth, he was silent. So on one hand, we know this is a prophecy fulfilled later by Jesus in Matthew 27, where in the face of his accusers before Pilate, Jesus said nothing. In the face of these false accusations, Jesus says nothing. It's one of the hardest things to read in the Gospels because you're going, wait, say something. Like outwit these guys. Say something that'll... Prove them wrong. You know he could, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He stays silent. And on the other hand, we have this emphasis on silence before slaughter, like a lamb. So I have a confession to make. I Googled something, and uh, I was curious, okay? I did it for you all, so you wouldn't have to, okay? I searched, are sheep quiet when they're slaughtered for meat? Enter. And, and some things you just can't unsee. Maybe one video, but not four. Certainly not four. I'm not even sure what I got out of it, except, except these, except these. One, sheep do fight if they know they're going to be killed. But, in a, a couple of them, they were silent if they were either oblivious, just no idea what's coming at them, or... And this was interesting, if they were trusting. And we know Jesus wasn't oblivious, and we'll talk more about that in a sec. The second thing I learned is that slaughter, and the Bible uses that word slaughter in all the parts, it's brutal. There's just no way around how shockingly violent it is. And maybe I'm just a city boy, but, or maybe I'm just especially sensitive to it, but just, it, was, it was brutal. It was shocking. Now, we know there's no way Jesus was oblivious leading to the cross. That's not why Jesus was silent. He mentions it many times in the gospel that he knows where he's going. The night before, his prayer was, God, let this cup pass from me. He did not want the pain that he knew was waiting for him. So he wasn't oblivious. Jesus was trusting. He was obedient to the will of the Father as the Father led him to slaughter. He submitted. He trusted and obeyed despite his affliction. Now back in verse 4, we read that same word, affliction, that the people would think that this servant was being afflicted by God, that this was somehow his own doing. Look at the irony laid out in verse 4. Let's read 4 again and then verse 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. But 
Did you catch the comparison there? Here's that great dichotomy. Again, John Oswald says this, the skill of the poet is shown in his repetition and reversal of the sickness and pains from verse 3, those weaknesses and illness that made us think little of the servant. It's our weakness and illness. Part of the shock of recognition for them, especially, would have been due to their, to the typical Near Eastern understanding that the source of suffering Right? If a person is suffering, it's because he or she has done something to deserve it. The book of Job being the classic example. Thus, if a person is smitten, it is because he or she is a sinner. But this man has been stricken because we are sinners. He was wounded not for his own sin, but for ours. And church, the poetry and beauty of that last triumphant line, with his wounds, his stripes, we are healed. And that verse literally taken is, in his welts, it is healed to us. Christians, this is our victory cry right there. That should burn within us. This is a triumphant, victorious word to us. And I think we often forget that when we're confronted with our sin. I think we're bad at this. I'm bad at this. But I see it over and over as I counsel people. So it reminds me of this story of my daughter, Eleanor. It's her birthday today. She's seven now, which is crazy. One time I walk outside and written in sidewalk chalk in the back patio, it says, Eleanor is the worst. And I was like, oh, that's really sad. She was at school at the time. Worst, by the way, was spelled W-R-S-T, which is so cute. So I, she wasn't home at the time. I erased her name because I'm like, I don't want to read that anymore. So I figured I'll follow up with her when she comes home. Forgot. Parenting is real sometimes. Forgot. Uh, but a couple of days later, I saw it written again. It was even bigger this time. Eleanor is the worst. And so I, she was home and I called her over. I'm like, sweetie, what is this? Why are you writing this? What's going on? Come to find out she was sinning against her brother being mean to him, and which siblings do sometimes. And she was really disappointed that she kept doing that. She just was heartbroken over her sin against her brother. And I thought on one hand, it was, it was good. Her anger and frustration was, was not misplaced. It was just misdirected. And there are some nuances I'll share when she gets older. But what we had her do in the moment was erase her name and in place write sin. So for a while on her back patio, it said, sin is the worst. See, she was right to be angry, but she directed it at the wrong thing. And I think we do this. So think about it. Think about when was the last time you were confronted with sin? Now, if you have to think about that really hard, you might not be, in a do, might not be doing a good job of asking others um, to show you your heart, but... Think about when you were confronted with sin, how did you respond? Now, I don't mean initially, but ultimately, how did you respond? Did you just feel bad and kind of forget and maybe move on? See, we say we get this, but we don't live like we get this. Did you, figuratively, did you self-lacerate, telling yourself, it's because I didn't do this right. It's because I didn't do enough, so tomorrow I'm going to get up and I'm going to do this right this time and, and everything will be better. That way of thinking is the same as what my daughter was doing. In my sin, saying, man, Tyler is the worst. 
So the Bible has a different way of dealing with sin that we need to be reminded of. And it's rooted in verse 5. Who was the one, we need to remember, who was the one that was pierced for my transgression? Was Tyler the one that was crushed? See, self-hatred because of sin is not entirely out of place. But self-crushing, many of you know what I mean by that, self-crushing takes the work of Jesus off and puts it back on our own shoulders, which is a load we were never meant to carry. You are not meant to carry that. And it doesn't have to be that way. See, confronting sin, repenting, is the Christian word for it, the biblical word for it. That's what Christians do. We hate sin. We repent of it. And the Bible has a lot to say to help us do that. So let's look. If you look for repent in your Bible, you're going to find about 70 references to that word, many of which were from Jesus. So we have to make sure we get that right. So let's start by just flipping a page or two over to Isaiah 55, 6 through 7. Isaiah 55, 6-7. This is how Isaiah summarizes repentance. Verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked, listen to this, forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So, Chuck, I'll ask you to just leave that slide up for a little bit here. Look at the words there. Look at the active process given. Seek, call upon, forsake, and return. You could summarize it basically into two main categories on what it means to repent from sin. There's a turning from and a turning to. Biblically, you can't turn from sin without turning to Christ. And you can't just turn to Christ without turning from sin in repentance. We need both. Now, before we even do that, there's a hidden step here, and that's considering. Considering is a big, big part of what it means to repent. You have to see sin for what it is, as wicked, wrong. Our sin should grieve us. This is the first step. And Paul encourages the Corinthian church to do this very thing, in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10, it says this, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Listen, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas a worldly grief produces death. So, What is a worldly grief? We need to know that, right? Now, we could say that worldly grief ends there. Worldly grief ends at grief. Feeling bad over and over and over and over again. And that's as far as we can get into that rabbit trail. But let's just agree that something that leads to death is not something we want, right? Let's just agree on that one. So repentance involves, like we said, a turning from and a turning to. So in turning from, what does that mean? Look at Isaiah 55, forsake your way and your thoughts. We're taking steps, actively turning away from that sin. And this is case by case. There's no exact process given to us. And remember, there's a hidden considering going on here. In order to forsake your way or thoughts, you have to know which way you're headed. 
what those thoughts are and why those aren't the right way. Take time to consider, but be careful of being idle. Your consideration should not lead you to idleness. If your phone causes you to sin, don't just sit there and think about how rough that was. Turn, get rid of the thing. Get a dumb phone. Install apps. Figure out what's going on, right? Get counseling. Turning from also involves making things right that were, that were wronged by that sin. And this takes more consideration. How? Ask yourself, how did this affect the relationships around me? Not neglecting your relationship to God in Christ. You see, we can't just stop at feeling bad because that doesn't fix the wrong done to someone else. Now listen, sin always affects another person. Sin always affects another person. Now you're sitting there trying to find an example of something that doesn't, right? Caught you. Okay, okay, let's take an example. Let's take porn. Yeah, let's go there, all right? It's commonly believed that you're not hurting anyone. I've had people tell me, yeah, but I'm not hurting anyone. It's fine, right? So besides the harm you're doing to your actual brain chemistry, you're supporting an industry that harms people, that brings them into sex trafficking to make those videos and images. Think about how this is affecting your, your relationship with your spouse if you're married, your future spouse if you're not married, your friendships, your relationships. This takes considering. And that's just one example, but it's something that's rampant in the church and repugnant to God and should be to us as well. So turning from involves making a plan, which will be especially fun for you type A people out there, for us type A people. First step, make a plan. We got that down. But we can't forget the other half. There's a turning from and a turning to. What does this look like? Look at Isaiah 55, 7. Let him return to the... Netflix, right? Let him return to the numbing behaviors. Let him return to the advice from your friend or trusted confidant. No, it says return to the Lord. And I tell people this over and over. God is your first counselor. Before your spouse, before your friend, return to the Lord. He is your confidant. We have to remember the work of Christ when we're turning to Remember his work, the suffering servant that we've been talking about. Back in verse 5, pray to the one who is pierced for that sin that you just committed against someone else. Pray to the one who took the crushing weight, the beatings, and let it stir in you new life, new gratefulness again for the work of Jesus. Remember his promises to you. And remember, church, what are you going to find in turning towards Christ? Guilt? Shame? No. Remember the verse, compassion, restoration, no condemnation, and that great word, pardon. Repentance is what we do, requiring faith in what God has done over and over and over again. Repentance is what we Christians, that's what we do, and it requires faith in what God has done, and we do it over and over again. In repentance, we turn from our sin. We know where that leads. And we turn to Christ in faith, knowing what he promises us. Now let's continue where we left off in verses 8 and 9 of Isaiah 53. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered? 
that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This describes the final injustice done to this servant, to Jesus. And again, we see this question, who would have considered that this is how things would happen? They made his grave with this wicked, rich individual, and we don't know what this rich man did, but we know in context, it's not saying he was wicked because he was rich. Besides, this is another prophecy fulfilled by Jesus in Matthew 27 about how he was buried. But the point is this, the spotless lamb, this suffering servant, with one final injustice, was laid to rest next to this wicked man, like the ones who hated Jesus his whole life, instead of the poor that he came to save. And this isn't one of those tropes where the good guy loses and the bad guy wins, but as we'll see next week, this was God's crazy plan all along. Hope is coming. You see, there's another reason for this sheep simile given earlier, is that we are sheep in need of a shepherd so we don't wander off, And he, Jesus, is not only the shepherd we need, but he's the lamb who took all the weight off of us. He's not only the shepherd we need, he's the lamb who took away the sins of the world. Now let's just talk for a second. Why is this brutality of slaughter, why is this even necessary? And we've talked about this many times before, but you might be feeling that right now with me. But remember, it has to do with God's justice. You cannot have justice and be permissive. And if you want to talk more about that, we the pastors, we'd love to sit down and and talk with you. You can look through past sermons on that. But here's, in summary, quickly, here's what this commentator has to say to help us summarize this quickly. This is not a matter of a raging tyrant who demands violence on someone to satisfy his fury. It is a God who wants a whole relationship with his people but is prevented by having it until incomplete justice is satisfied. In the servant, he's found a way to gratify his love and satisfy his justice. Frank's been saying through this whole series so far that the promises of Christmas come through the suffering of Christ. You see, this great dichotomy we've been seeing This great comparison between us and he, the whole reason for it is what's been called the great exchange. In trade for our sins and shame and death, Christ takes that and gives us instead pardon and with it peace and all the promises of Christ, which is a good deal for us and a terrible one for him. So why? Why did he do it? Because you were worth the cost. Because that person you sinned against was worth the cost. And the way this great exchange happens is through continually coming back over and over to repentance in Christ. Now we're going to do something different and as we close today, small but, but important. We take time for communion and prayer every week and we're going to do those things again. And I should say too, I'll just say this and then we'll move on. But this is also the time for Christians where we set aside for giving our tithes and offerings during this part. If you're new with us, we don't, we don't expect that from you. Uh, this is something that Christians do in obedience to God's call. 
Uh, and so there are offering boxes in the back as usual or you can give online. So what's different is this, that just for today, we're going to have an additional couple of people and their staff and deacons, and they're going to be available in the lobby as well. I know that's something new for us. It might feel weird to be in the lobby and pray. It's weird to be up here and pray too, I get it. So we're going to have additional people in the, in the rear and in the front to pray because the reason we're doing this, there's no better time than now to obey the call of Christ to repent. So if God has exposed sin in your heart, this is what it looks like to come to Christ and repent. This is the reason for the season. This is the center of the work for this infant, for you and I. The reason the child came to earth is to make a way for us, and that way happens through repentance. So during this time, consider two things. First, consider how has your sin affected your neighbors? Has God exposed some sin in your heart and you're fighting with it, wrestling, not sure what to do? Consider first, how has it affected those around you? Ask God, if you don't know, ask God to show you. He knows your heart. He knows your heart better than you do. Ask him to show you. Also during this time, repent. Simply take steps to turn away from sin as you're confronted by it. See, there's a beautiful simplicity in the call of Christ. There's no feeling to summon up. There's no circumstances to wait for. Simply come forward. If you feel yourself trying to summon up the feelings, waiting for that, you're going to be waiting a while. Simply step forward and obey. Now, remember, no one here is going to judge. If, they come, if you come forward for prayer, no one's going to be sitting watching going, oh, I wonder what they're getting prayer for. That's, that's not what we're doing. We're the family, the family of God. This is what we do. We need each other. So in closing, as the band comes up, I'm going to read sections of a poem by Christina Rossetti called Despised and Rejected. Now, I know this won't hit all of you the same. That's okay, but maybe God will use it for some of us in here. If nothing else, it'll at least help usher us into communion time. Plus, if we can't do a poem reading in Advent, when can we? So we're going to do that. So the words will be up on the screen. They'll help you follow along because it's a little bit long, but it's worth it. So the way it works is I'll read this. Remember what we learned, that the poems speak to the listening mind. So listen. Try to follow along. Then after I read this, I'll just exit quietly. And we'll begin our time of communion again with extra people available for prayer, should you choose to come. This is Despised and Rejected by Christina Rossetti. My sun has set, I dwell. In darkness as a dead man out of sight. And none remains, not one that I should tell to him mine evil plight this bitter night. I will make fast my door that hollow friends may trouble me no more. Friend, open to me. Who is this that calls? Nay, I am deaf, as are my walls. Cease crying, for I will not hear thy cry of hope or fear. Friend, my feet bleed. Open thy door to me and comfort me. I will not open. Trouble me no more. Go on thy way, footsore. I will not rise and open unto thee. Then is it nothing to thee? Open, see who stands to plead with thee. Open, lest I should pass thee by, and thou one day 
entreat my face and howl for grace and I be deaf as thou art now. Open to me. And I cried out upon him, Cease, leave me in peace. Yea, trouble me no more, lest I arise and chase thee from my door. But all night long that voice spake urgently, Open to me, that I may come to thee. While the dew dropped, while the dark hours were cold, my feet bleed. See my face. See my hands bleed that bring thee grace. My heart bleeds for thee. Open to me. So, till the break of day, then died away, that voice in silence as of sorrow, then footsteps, echoing like a sigh, passed me by. Lingering footsteps, slow to pass. On the morrow I saw, upon the grass, each footprint marked in blood, and on my door the mark of blood forevermore.